has demonstrated grace. All right. So do I need to say the first 93% of that? All right. As you uh, just saw, we have the fall kickoff coming up September 18th, and it's going to be at Clefner Ranch. We'll have one service at 1030, and uh, then in the evening, we'll have a cookout at 5 o'clock, and then uh, Tim and the Glory Boys concert at 630. They will also be uh, leading worship during the morning service, and if you've not seen Tim and the Glory Boys, uh, or if you haven't had some of the amazing food at the cookout, you'll want to be here. And uh, we're excited to say that the bull will be back. And uh, so if you haven't ridden the bull, uh, you need to make sure that you're here this year, September 18th, for our fall kickoff. If you have an interest in being baptized, uh, we have baptism scheduled for the lake next week. Uh, if you have an interest in that, or just uh, any time here in the near future, please uh, let us know, and we'd love to do that as you follow the Lord in that step of obedience. And also the 27th of August, we have our Mizpah work day. Sign up at the Welcome Center, and uh, we could use a great crew of people, lots of stuff, preparing for fall and winter groups coming in and, and uh, closing up some of the summer things. Uh, if you are into construction, we'll have should have a couple nice construction projects. You say, and maybe I'm not, that's not my cup of tea. We've got lots of jobs for people, no matter how talented you are in the construction field. And uh, pray for Mizpah. We're, we're excited about what's going on with the lodge, lots of things taking place, and so uh, continue to pray for that. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing this morning. Father, as we come before you, may we recognize who you are. Lord, Almighty God, and, and you desire to hear our prayers. And you desire to walk with us through life. I pray that you would help us today as we recognize our enemy. Lord, to recognize that you are the one who is all-powerful and we can look to you and trust you. May your word be clear. Lord, may nothing that we do distract from the power and the principles of your word. May you be glorified in all that is said this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, beware of the lion. We find this in 1 Peter chapter 5. And an interesting passage, just two verses this morning as we continue our journey through 1 Peter. Uh, but a lion, an interesting animal. We have a picture coming up here. And uh, how many of you have seen that movie? It was 1996, Michael Douglas, Val Kilmer, I believe in it, and others. And uh, yeah, it even says it up there. I can just look at the sign and see that Michael Douglas and Val Kilmer are in there. But it was a story uh, with some video license taken from a book that was written called The Maneaters of Tsovo. And it was the story in 1898 of the people building a railroad bridge in Kenya. And as they built that bridge, they had a lot of workers, and they would stay in these huts. And over a period of time, two man-eating lions killed some estimates up to 135 of these people. 
They would come in at night into the various huts and kill and devour some of these workers. The guy that was in charge of the construction was an engineer, Colonel John Henry Patterson. Finally, in I believe it was November, could have been October, November of 1898, we were able to kill the first of the two lions, and then in December, the second one. But obviously, a very horrific story. But these man-eating lions, and they said, why did they make a man-eating? Some, of them, some people believe they had tooth issues. And so evidently humans are a little easier to eat than some of the other animals. Are. Uh, sorry, that was a bad joke. But uh, they did say they had tooth issues was part of the reason they, uh, they maybe started to kill humans. Lions, the king of the jungle. Why are they considered the king of the jungle? Because they're on the top of the food chain. They really don't have any natural predators. Occasionally a group of hyenas may, may kill a wounded or weak lion. Every once in a while a crocodile, but they're, the lions are the king of the jungles. First Peter chapter 5, we see that Peter compares our enemy Satan to a powerful lion. Follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. It says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. As we've been going through 1 Peter, we've been seeing some of the things that Peter has been challenging his, his readers there in Asia Minor, but also us in our walk with God, as we face suffering and persecution, and those original readers faced an amazing amount of persecution under the reign of Nero, as we see the, the challenges that they faced in their walk with Christ, many of the same challenges that we can face as we strive to follow Christ. But here we give, Peter gives us some advice concerning how we can stand against Satan. He begins with the warning to watch out. It says, be sober, be vigilant. We're to be on guard. We see that in the first part of verse 8, to, to be on guard. Be sober, be vigilant. Be sober means to be self-controlled and disciplined. Vigilant means to be alert and watchful. Be on guard. But if we look at this, we need to recognize that there's some attitudes that, that Peter has been preparing us to have this battle with Satan. These, these attitudes here in the beginning of chapter 5 that we have looked at, that these attitudes that we're to have in order to be sober and vigilant. The attitudes of submission, humility, trust, self-control. These attitudes are necessary in facing a fierce enemy. And we need to recognize we're going to be destroyed if we're indifferent or apathetic. We will be much more watchful if we recognize the danger. And he goes on in the last part of verse 8 to, to help us to recognize the danger. 
The last part of verse 8 says, Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Several things in that last part of that verse help us understand he's our adversary. He's the enemy. He fights against us. He walks about the idea that he is active. And then a roaring lion, the power that he has. And and what is his goal? To devour, to destroy us. We must recognize the, the power of our enemy. If you are into sports at all, you need to recognize that one of the most common mistakes that occurs in sports is is when a team or an individual does not respect their opponent. I remember our junior year of basketball, we uh, we played in the Class B Southwest Division, and uh, there were some teams that were pretty tough. Big Timber was always tough. Three Forks was tough. But there were some teams that weren't quite as tough. Manhattan. Sorry if any of you are here from Manhattan, but Manhattan was not tough. In fact, in football, I remember my seventh grade year, we beat them 52 to nothing. They stopped the game at halftime with the mercy rule. And... uh, Belgrade always beat Manhattan in football, and I remember uh, in the years that I played in baseball, we would always beat Manhattan handily, and football, we would always beat Manhattan handily, and in basketball, we would always beat Manhattan handily. In my junior year, we had a pretty good team. We had a group of seniors that were really good. But we beat Manhattan 15 or 20 points the first time we played them, and then we were going to play them a second time in Manhattan. And I remember the game, and and it's amazing. There's lots of things I couldn't remember in high school, like facts from my history tests and other things. But I I remembered many of these sports things. And I remember I I can still picture sitting in that locker room before the game and, and guys just laughing, cutting it up. And we went out. And we played horribly. And Manhattan beat us. It's the first time in my, you know, starting in middle school, the first time I ever remember playing on a team that Manhattan beat. Of course, after the game, the coach seemed to be a little alarmed, but none of the rest of us were. Ah, that was a fluke. So we go to divisional tournament at Brick Breeden Field House in Bozeman, Montana. That was cool to play there. And, and so we're, we go there and we play, and, and we're playing Manhattan with a chance to go to championship night. Manhattan, how did they even get to this spot? And we said, this is great. Guess what? Our locker room, just like in that game earlier in the year, laughing, cutting it up, they beat us. Manhattan went on to play that night. We didn't. Now, my pride has to let you know that my senior year, we didn't lose to Manhattan. But we did not respect our enemy. In fact, if you you matched up the players on the two teams, I think with maybe one exception, Each individual player on the Belgrade team 
was superior to their opponent in Manhattan. But we were apathetic and indifferent. We didn't respect the opponent that we were playing. And what Peter is talking about here is much bigger than a basketball game. We need to recognize the power of our enemy. And while Satan is not all-powerful, he is powerful. And we must recognize that power. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13 says this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand if you've been noticing over the last actually this is the 16th message here in first peter and as you've been noticing the the title of the series is stand firm because several times in the passages here of first peter peter challenges us to stand firm here in first peter chapter 5 we're to we're to stand Against Satan, as Paul wrote Ephesians 6, challenging us to stand and having done all to stand. We're to put on the army of God, armor of God that we can stand against the wiles of the devil, his attacks. And Paul went on there as we read in verse 12, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age. It's a spiritual battle. And we're called to stand. But often we picture Satan as as he's depicted in the cartoons. We picture a guy in in a pair of red tights with funny little horns and a pitchfork who who desires to go and to poke at us, and, and we laugh at the character. But Satan is powerful. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, shared two dangerous thoughts that we can have concerning Satan and concerning his demons. And here's what C.S. Lewis says in the introduction to that book. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, we as humans, can fall about the devils or Satan and his demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They, the demons, Satan and the demons, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Whether we underestimate his power or overestimate his power and have an unhealthy fear of him. Several years ago, Barna Research surveyed Christians and asked them if they agreed or disagreed with this statement. Listen to the statement. It says, the devil is not a living being, but just a symbol of evil. And so they surveyed Christians. 32% of them strongly agreed that the devil was not a living being. 11% agreed somewhat, and 5% didn't know. That meant that 43% of those Christians surveyed did not believe in a literal Satan, and another 5% were not sure of his existence. 
Now, Scripture doesn't have the same picture of Satan that those people surveyed have or had. The Bible speaks of Satan and his power. Jesus himself did not doubt his existence or or say he had no power. Scripture over and over speaks of the power that Satan has. In Jude 9, we find that Michael the archangel did not, dare cha- did not dare challenge Satan in his own power, but instead the Lord rebuke you. Michael, the most powerful of angels, recognized that we face a powerful enemy. In Daniel chapter 10, we see that Daniel prayed and a messenger was sent to Daniel to give an answer to his prayer. But it says that Daniel waited and waited and for three weeks he waited, but the messenger didn't come. Finally, the messenger came and the reason the messenger was delayed was because the evil powers that fought against him. We face a powerful enemy. John chapter 10 warns us that Satan desires to steal, to kill, and destroy. As we see here in 1 Peter 5, he walks about seeking those he may devour. Well, who are his targets? His ultimate target is Jesus Christ. The battle between Satan and Christ, the Son of God, is first referenced in Genesis 3.15. We call it the Proto-Evangelium, the first evangelism. Adam and Eve had just chosen to sin, and sin came into the world, and death by sin. But even then, God was preparing his plan for our battle against sin, Satan, and evil. And in Genesis 3.15, as, as the snake is being punished, but ultimately Satan is being punished, God tells that there will be one who comes, the seed of the woman, the Messiah that would come that would destroy Satan. In Matthew chapter 4, we see the temptation of Jesus. As, as Satan tries to get Jesus to, to stray from the plan, God's eternal and perfect plan for salvation from our sins. Satan also had an apparent victory at the crucifixion. As Jesus the Messiah was killed, but Satan didn't recognize that it was part of God's ultimate plan and God's ultimate victory. Satan desired to be like God. Isaiah tells us that. So he was banished from God's presence. His ultimate doom set. But he still is a powerful enemy. Satan targets angels. We see that passage in Daniel chapter 10, Revelation 12, and other places. Satan attacks Israel, God's chosen people. That's seen especially in end times as the nation of Israel is brought back to the center of God's plan. And Satan's attacks upon God's people, the Israelites. But Satan targets each one of us. For those who are not Christ followers, he strives to keep them from the truth. 
And for Christians, those who have given their life to Jesus Christ, He desires to weaken us, to keep us from impacting the world in which we live. We have a, he is a powerful enemy. He studies and He knows our weaknesses. He knows the areas where we are most vulnerable. He tempts us, striving to, to get us to fail and to fall. He attacks God's institutions, the, the institution of the family, the institution of the church. Now, if we stopped right there, we would all leave with our heads hung a little low saying, well, what are we going to do? He's a powerful enemy. But he's not an all-powerful enemy. He is knowledgeable, but he's not all-wise. We find that Satan has been given parameters Peter himself saw Satan's power as well as his limitations firsthand. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, one of the recordings of, of that, what we call the Last Supper. It's very interesting. They've gone through the Last Supper and, and Jesus says that everyone's going to deny him and Peter says, oh, I will never deny you, Jesus. Though the world deny you, I won't deny you. I will be with you even to death. Listen to Christ's response in verse 31 of Luke chapter 22. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now we see the power of Satan. By the way, you notice how Jesus refers to Peter in that verse. We've talked about this a couple times as we've gone through First Peter, Simon. And I know Peter must have cringed when he heard that name. Because whenever Peter's messing up, Jesus usually calls him Simon, his given name, rather than Peter the Rock, the name that Jesus had given him. But we see the power of Satan. He can sift you as wheat but also the parameters Satan has asked. Satan is considered the ruler of this world, but he is limited in what he can do. In the book of Job, Satan was able to attack Job only with God's permission and was limited in what he could do. And not only does Satan have limitations, but we need to recognize that Satan will ultimately lose. His eternal destiny has been determined. He is a powerful enemy. He walks around. He's actively seeking whom he may devour. So how do we respond? And verse 9 shares, us, shares with us how we respond. We are to resist and verse 9 says, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We resist by standing firm in the faith. Resist means to stand against, to stand firm against an enemy. And that battle begins in our mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 10 and verse 5 says this, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. How do we stand firm? How do we resist? Well, 
we follow the instructions that Peter gives, going back to verse 8, to be sober and vigilant, to be watchful, self-controlled, recognizing the seriousness of the battle. And to focus on the faith. The way that Peter writes this here, steadfast in the faith, the idea of the faith was that reminds us that the faith, the truth that was passed down in Scripture. You see, we can have victory through God and His Word. You notice how Jesus responded when Satan tempted him? One of the places there in Matthew chapter 4, we see uh, uh, the the story of when Satan tempted Jesus. What was Jesus' response? Scripture. You see, we need to recognize and know God's Word. The armor, we read verses 10 through 13 of Ephesians 6 a little earlier, the introduction to the armor of God. And then it goes on there beginning in verse 13 through, I believe, 17 or 18, and, and it shares some of the armor that we're, to carry, to, that we're to put on. And if you'll notice the armor, it's all defensive except one piece of armor, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're to have our feet shod with truth, that firm foundation to help us to stand firm but defense. The, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, our loins girt about with the gospel. All these things are defensive to help us to be strong, to stand against. But the Word of God is the offensive weapon that we have. And oftentimes we do one of two things in our battle with Satan. We don't recognize the seriousness of the battle. Or we try to handle the battle ourselves without God and his word. But we can only have victory when we rely on God and his power, not our own. Think of it this way. Before we stand against Satan, we must bow before God. James chapter 4 and verse 7 says this, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he, the devil, will flee from you. Resist the devil, but don't forget the first part. Submit to God. I guarantee you, if you go and you say, I'm going to handle Satan myself, you're going to lose. Only through God and his word do we have the power to resist the devil. Another thing that, that is implied here and we find many other places is the importance of sticking with the herd. Think about that a little bit. As you think of lions, you know when lions seek out their prey, what do they do? They separate the one that they're going after from the rest of the herd. As Christ followers, we're called to strengthen each other, to rely upon each other. One of the quickest ways to lose the battle is to separate ourselves from others who can stand with us. And God set up the church with 
many responsibilities. We're called to worship, grow, and share. All right, that's what we're called to do together. But as a church, we're to encourage each other. We're to stand with each other when, when our fellow Christian is hurt. We're to walk alongside and help them. But unfortunately, oftentimes, Christians want to go on it solo. I don't need others. I'll handle this myself. But that's not how God made us able to have the victory. We're called to stand together. We're called to strengthen each other. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we, we hear the story of Elijah. Now, it's, it's been going on throughout, throughout the book. We, we've, we've been hearing about Elijah. But in chapter 18, Elijah faces the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal versus one prophet of God, Elijah. And they have, if you remember the story, you probably heard it in Sunday school if you grew up in the church, you know, where they had, where they were going to have a sacrifice and to see which God could bring down fire from heaven. Baal, the idol, or God, Jehovah. And so Elijah had, the, the, he had them, they built their altar and Elijah rebuilt the altar of God that had been falling apart because it wasn't being used because the people weren't following God. But the prophets of Baal called down, prayed, and nothing happened. Obviously, it was an idol. But then Elijah prayed, and God brought down fire, and, and the sacrifice was destroyed, and, and the prophets of Baal were defeated, and, and it was the utmost in victory there at Mount Carmel. But in the very next chapter... We see that Queen Jezebel, the wicked queen, heard what had happened and she said, Elijah's going to be dead in 24 hours. And so what did Elijah do? He ran. And he hid. And he prayed that God would just take his life. Pretty sad story. But if you look at some of the things that Elijah did on his way to his pity party, one of the things he did that I think we often overlook is he told his assistant, man that had been walking through him through, with him, excuse me, through all these struggles. He told him, "You stay there. I'm going on alone." And Elijah isolated himself. You know, we can't isolate ourselves. We need to stick with the herd. Then we can strengthen each other and God can use us. It's God's power. It's God's victory. But he uses us to strengthen others and he uses others to strengthen us. And when we follow God's plan, we're promised to have victory. But again... There's actually three, three pitfalls. Pitfall number one, we don't take the battle seriously. We're not watchful. 
We're not vigilant. We don't resist. I remember coaching a team, and they were a, a neat group of high school boys. And when I was back in Minnesota, we, I was able to, to coach them. And, but you know what? They were not a very good basketball team. Here's the reason. They were more concerned about where we were going to stop for dinner after the game than who we were playing in the game itself. We must recognize the seriousness of the game. This is a battle. Seriousness of the game, the second error is that we underestimate the enemy. Whether we say, I can handle this myself, or whether we let down our guard because of overconfidence. And the third is that we overestimate the enemy. That same team over the years and back in Minnesota became very good. But there was one team we could never beat, Rochester. And I have a feeling if Rochester would have laid down on the floor, our guys would have laid down next to him because we thought we could not beat them. I think we fall into danger when we see a devil behind every tree and we're concerned and say, I, I'll never win. God has promised us the victory if we are watchful, diligent, and resist. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 says this, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We have the victory. We need to trust the victor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Lord, help us to recognize the seriousness of the battle. Help us to recognize that our enemy is a strong enemy. Lord, help us to look to you for strength in the battle and help us to encourage each other in the battle. Help us to remember that greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. And we will give you the glory for what you will do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.